Hi everyone, so I'm here today with Professor Duncan Green, who's a Senior Strategic Advisor at Oxfam GB and Professor in Practice in International Development at LSE. Um, hi Duncan, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, good to be here. Um, yeah, fab. So I thought maybe we could start off by talking about your most recent publication, How Change Happens, which released in 2016. Um, I wanted to, to kind of ask you to start off with why you wrote this, because I, um, I watched a video of you talking about your book before that, From Poverty to Power. Um, and you were kind of saying, do we need another book? Um, and maybe addressing a little bit about that. Sure. Apologies for slurping tea while we talk. Um, so in the previous book, I'd had a kind of annex with some ideas about the mechanics of, of social change. And then um, I got more and more interested in that, which is essentially the how rather than the what. A lot of time in the aid and development sector, we talk about what we want to do, you know, what we want to achieve, what policies we want to change. Um, uh, and this is, and I got more interested in how do people bring that about or fail to bring that about. And so the book is really pulling together ideas from different disciplines around how do people bring about intentional social change, if you like. Mm -hmm. um, and they pulls in ideas from systems thinking, uh, political science, uh, and then a lot of activist experience from Oxfam and elsewhere. And it was, it was just huge fun to write, actually, and research. Yeah, I, I can imagine. Um, and some of the case studies that you include there are really fascinating, particularly the one you kind of start off talking about, the um, one in Tikhamgar, is that how you say it, um, yeah. in India. Um, wondering maybe you could elaborate for um, listeners on what that kind of story is about, about the fishermen and the Brahmin coming in, in and, and how that kind of led to the leading into understanding the book. Yeah, it's one of those, you know, uh, if you're lucky enough to travel uh, and, and, and get paid to ask people, questions and be nosy every now and then you get a story which really kind of is a light bulb moment in your thinking and sort of makes things fall into place and Tikhamgar was one of those for me it's a it's a place a few hours from Delhi um traditionally um uh, uh it's a place where there have been lots of fishing going on in these things they call ponds which are actually artificial lakes and up until about 20 years ago um this had just been pe local people have been left to fish these lakes and then about 20 years ago, someone discovered that if you seeded the lakes with baby fish or fish eggs, you massively increased production. And at that point, um, uh, they became very valuable. Uh, so a technical, technological shift led to then a social shift, which is mm -hmm. lots of people who would not normally be interested suddenly got very interested in the profits that were available. And they came in and they drove the fishing communities off these ponds and started to make money. The fishing communities... Um, had a kind of, they had a light bulb moment, which was that uh, they were protesting and some of their kids got beaten up by hired thugs. And mm -hmm. at that point, they got really angry and sort of started to organise. And to cut a long story short, they started forming co-ops and, and they set up a protest movement. So, yeah, this was getting hundreds of thousands of people out on the street. Oh, wow. The interesting bit was what happened next, which was that they found an ally in the state government so this is you know india is a federal system in the state government they found a former fisherman who was now minister of fisheries and he understood what their situation and he became their ally and, and framed legislation for co-ops um, and if they formed co-ops they're able to reclaim the ponds so they formed a whole bunch of co-ops they reclaimed a bunch of ponds uh, there was a women-only co-op which surprise surprise was the most productive <laughs> of all of them um, 
And when I got there, it was just like, this is a fascinating story. And then I went back about 10 years later, a bit, yeah, a bit in trepidation. Because when you find one of those really nice success stories in development, sometimes you go back and you find out actually it wasn't. Uh, you know, somebody ran off with all the money or it was never that good. You just didn't understand it. So I went back and actually it had just carried on in a really impressive way um, and uh, expanded further. And uh, so it, it, it just got me thinking about various things, the, the importance of social movements, the importance of that link with the technological change triggering a social and political change, and then the importance of ally alliances between social movements and people in positions of power, you know, all came together in that one story. And I thought it was, I really found it a fascinating place to visit. Yeah. I mean, um, li kind of listening to you talk about it, it, it sounds like a really good kind of example to come into things. And also challenging the view that technological change always leads to more development and leads to better outcomes for people's lives ignoring the fact that obviously the social side comes into there and the treatment of these fishermen um because of the kind of caste system which a lot of people see have their views on um uh being of lower caste then treated in that way um were then cast aside and then this empowerment yes through an ngi through this brahmin of are considered as a higher caste but also by their own selves and i think that's really great that they kind of did that on their own accord. And we can talk a little bit about how kind of people harness this power um, that they possess. I think that's a really kind of cool idea and something that we, so I do a philosophy degree um, and something we look at quite a lot with Foucault and things like that. So um, yeah, I think well, it's a really interesting idea. I think those are good observations. And I think this, you know, the other thing it, it, it brought home to me is, is, is the importance of understanding power. Right. So, so I, um, I often use the the maybe getting a bit dated, but the um, comparison with the Matrix. You know? So, I love your Matrix references. I love it. <laughs> so, power is the kind of matrix of international development in that um, it sort of suffuses society, and a lot of processes of change are actually about the renegotiation of power. Um, and uh, if you understand and can make power visible, a bit like you know Neo sees the Matrix at some point in the film, mm -hmm. then you can actually understand social change and become more effective as a change maker. So I don't go the full Foucault because I, you know, I didn't understand him, but um, I do mention him. And uh, I think there's a bunch of slightly simpler, less French ways of understanding power, which um, which can be really helpful to activists. And just think, so for example, the, the, yeah, what you said, a technological change doesn't happen in a vacuum. It changes the power relations between players. Does it empower as technology does sometimes? Or does it disempower as it did in this case? So the, yeah, these are these. I think becoming power literate is a crucial first step. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think um, understanding the dynamics there is essential. Um, and kind of discussing a little bit about power. I mean, you talk about Roland's um, theory of kind of power within, which I think is a really interesting concept. Um, I recently studied Serene Kader, who looked at um, kind of women. Uh, who have this is a bit going off topic but um women who have um addressing their IA, iaps is what she refers to it i don't know if you've heard of this theory no um on. so it's basically these inappropriately adaptive preferences which are preferences toward something that um is not considered in her words a deep preference so in if the idea is that if women had access to all of the options and understood that they were options they would choose something else so um and this is something that i actually wanted to, to chat to you about because we discuss it a lot in our tutorials um and it's this idea that how do you 
help help people in in kind of quotation marks um who are kind of ha- say they're happy with their situation um and a particular example that we looked at with women's kind of internalized um oppression um and you know going to countries as a westerner and saying this is you know women are not educated here and women say i don't want to be educated how do you deal with a situation like that without appearing condescending without appearing like you're putting your values as a westerner on people from um the global the global south i think this is a fantastic question and i don't think there's any easy answers sorry i mean well, I think that's kind of, yeah, kind of the point. So, so for example, yeah, we uh, Oxfam did a massive uh, grassroots mobilisation um, project called We Can in South Asia to reduce domestic violence, and the the metric which they held up as a at the end of that as successful was you know instead of sixty percent of women thinking it was okay for their husband to beat them, thirty percent of the women thought it was okay for their husband to beat them, and that was just really yeah, fascinating because, okay, a process of, of, of mobilization led by Indian feminists. So, you know, um, uh, so was Indian, but sort of it was very much global as well, led to a shift, partial shift in social norms. So in a sense, that's the good story. But uh, I think when you're saying, you know, your preferences are, are inappropriately adapted, who says? Who makes that call? You, it very easily becomes very arrogant. Um, and I think you're, you're caught between, on the one hand, people saying there are universal principles which just happen to be your mind, and then on the other one, a sort of terrible moral relativism which says, hey, if people want to kill, you know, gay people, then that's fine. Um, so you've got to, uh, I think, always listen to the communities and be respectful. Don't come in and say, I, you know, I, I have red lines, I know what the truth is, you know, you, you're all wrong. But also don't go all completely, oh, whatever the community says, because the community is written with differences and power is distributed unequally. Not everybody thinks the same in a community or in a country. So it's, it's really difficult. And the only thing I would say is you just have to look and listen really carefully and put your own thoughts to one side a bit, mm. uh, at least at first. Yeah. And I think you talk about... Um... In your in in your book about how we we come with our own prejudices, our own biases, um, and also how we are viewed by. I think you use the example of um, the responses given when a white person is present in the corner of the room and when they're not, which I thought was really interesting. About how you don't realise the power that, as um, an aid worker, you take to a to a space um, and stuff like that. Yeah, I think a lot of people in the aid sector, yeah. We basically don't think we have any power. I mean, um, yeah, we're, we're, we're a bit shy, um, you know, terribly nice people. So the last thing we imagine is that people would look at us as, as holding a lot of power. But just through simply ha- being the people with the budget, the people with the four-wheel drive or whatever it is, we hold a pile of power. And if you layer on top of that, you know, de- centuries of colonialism, the fact that you, if you have a white skin, uh, or if you have a university degree or, you know, you speak in a certain way. So I think the book is part, yeah, like many good people in the aid business argues for reflexivity, arguing that you have to think about your own position in this community or in this discussion. You know, I want to, yeah, I, a typical example, I want to talk to the women in the community. You know, I don't want to just talk to the men. And I want to talk about, talk about things like domestic violence, but that may not be possible because of who I am. And you may have to just settle for second best 
and ask a female colleague or uh, yeah, a trusted interlocutor to get that information or to have those conversations because you just can't. Um, and you, so you have to accept the limitations that come from your own position. I'm trying not to say positionality, but you know what I mean. Yeah, no, I, I understand what you mean. Um, and kind of toward the end of the book, you give your very hesitantly, um, I remember you discussing how you, you could your premise of your book is basically from my, my opinion, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's anti this cake structure. It's saying there is no recipe to aid um, and, and attempts to do that are kind of end, end up being misled or oversimplifying the issue um, or leaving it untouched. And then that's when, you know, as we talked about at the start, um, when you come back to a project, that disheartening feeling when it kind of fall, all falls apart. Um, and so you kind of give your very, very... Um, hesitantly give your how how to almost of a kind of like being curious having humility you talked about reflexivity um and obviously the inclusion of multiple perspectives um what what do you think about um because the, the, there's a tension there right between and you say this particularly with oxfam with selling it to the public because they're fundamentally need to raise funds in, in forms other than does oxfam receive funds from the government i don't i don't know uh, not at the moment Okay. Um, so we, we sometimes we do, sometimes we don't, and it's different in different countries. Okay. Um, so yeah, so you're receiving in the UK your funds solely from um, uh, charity giving. Is that correct? No, we also get money from other governments. We just don't get money from the British government at the moment. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, but like solely for Oxfam GB, you're only receiving, and then from other governments. Yeah. Okay. Um, why why are we not giving you any money? Um, we're still in the aftermath of a sexual uh, conduct scandal uh, okay, yeah. in, 18, uh, yeah. in 2018, um, and we have not yet had the taps turned on, and when, I'm not sure whether we want the taps turned on. I'm not privy to those conversations, but okay. uh, we're still um, uh, persona non grata with the British government on this. Right, okay, yeah, okay. Um Right. So in terms of the, your funding, your main source funding at the moment in this country is from people donating. And so you have to sell this kind of A plus B equals C. Um, this is where your funding is going. And this is the solution that we hope or think will come out of it. But of course, on the actual groundwork, it doesn't work that way. Um, maybe you could talk about that a bit more. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure if this is a real tension or an imagined one. It's definitely imagined in that people think... You know, people inside the aid world think, unless you say, we know how to do this, people won't give you money. But I'm, maybe I'm just naive, but I think if you explain to people that this is really difficult stuff um, and you have good stories about when it works, which include all the messiness and the accident and the serendipity and stuff, then people say, yeah, we, that's, that's what life's like. We understand that. Um, so I think there's different currents of opinion within the aid world about how honest you should be that success is sometimes accidental um, and that you can't plan your way to victory, that you always have to adjust as you go. And the phrase I like from a woman called Danella Meadows, great mathematician, is you have to dance with the system. Mm. And I use that a lot. And, 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 the, and the, the successful aid projects for, that I've looked at are the ones which just kind of have that ability to, to dance and pivot and change. And that is anathema to the idea that you roll out a three or five year plan, all preconceived, and that you get great results, as you said. Um, I think it's possible to do that. I think also we can get back to old fashioned ideas like solidarity. You know, if you're saying, 
we want to do we want to have solidarity with people in struggle you're not telling those people in struggle what they should do with your solidarity you're trusting them so i think there's that's one uh, i think another really interesting form of aid which has become a bit unfashionable but i think is worth thinking about is scholarships because i think scholarships for leaders future leaders could be a really interesting thing which has been rather neglected and i think that's compatible with the systems thinking this idea that you know the people who will emerge time and time again in different places are the same people are these leaders who will be in one project then in another project so why not back the leaders rather than back the projects so i think there are various things we can do by taking systems thinking seriously which are you know and, and make the aid system a bit smart a bit more savvy yeah i think that that sounds really interesting um in terms of your advice to Oxfam, how does that work? Um, how often do you kind of deal with them? Because um, obviously you are, you. Uh, it's quite interesting when listening to some of your talks and, and in your book, because a lot of aspects you're obviously critical of, which is kind of the part, I mean, the main part of giving advice is criticising and um, you know trying to provide solutions. Um, but it is kind of interesting hearing you speak in Oxfam a certain way um what kind of what is your uh, opinion there on like how how you work with them well it's a bit anglo maybe it's a bit anglo-centric but i think of myself as the fool in king lear all right so <laughs> so you know i'm allowed to say things which the uh which the dukes and earls can't say i'm allowed to be a bit rude uh, i'm allowed to take the mick a little bit and then at some point i might well be beheaded um, for doing so but uh, for the moment I have the space to do that what that means is that I can say things I mainly say them through the blog and through conversations I'm not a part of formal decision making and uh, nor do I want to be um, and I can't get too hung up about whether my advice is taken all I can do is say look I think this and some of those things get traction and most of them don't and that's fine and it's a lovely position to be and I'm very grateful to Oxfam for giving me the space to mm -hmm. do that um, and as I said, at some point, I'm going to end up with my head on a pike, but not quite yet. So it works on more of a consulting basis as an external. I'm not even sure consulting. I mean, consultants, you pay people to tell you stuff that you want them to tell you. And I definitely don't do that with Oxfam. So uh, I don't know. If I don't know. I can't think of a better analogy than the fool. Um, <laughs> I like that analogy. I'm a fan. Yeah. Um, another thing I really liked about your book is, and this is something that I'm quite keen advocate of um you use the example of um i think it's in egypt where they say something like 97 percent of people um at a certain point um were women were experiencing fgm or undergoing fgm um and instead of focusing on that really big statistic you look at the three percent and see okay what's happening with these women who aren't being cut um and we go what are we doing right and this focus is on the positive um and i hope that maybe you could expand that a bit more yeah, I mean, this is a really fascinating field of work. It's called positive deviance. And what it, what it does is acknowledge that in any situation, any system, uh, the system itself will have thrown up solutions to the given problem that you're investigating. And those, pro those solutions may be partial, may be full, uh, may be total. And it, it came, the original sort of um, light bulb for that was... Um, two young um, uh, Save the Children people going to Vietnam um, just after Vietnam had restored relations with uh, the US and this was Save the Children US. And they gave these two young people an impossible task. The Communist Party said, okay, you have to reduce malnutrition in three months. 
um, in, in, in some villages, and that's your task. And they thought, my God, how do we do that? And they'd been they'd read something at, at their college or something about positive deviance, so they decided to give it a go. And the, the idea behind positive deviance is that not that is what they then did. They got everybody together in the commune and said, okay, we've come to help. Are the children malnourished? And people said, yes. And then they said, are all the children equally malnourished? And the people said, well, obviously not. And they said, well, okay, so what we want you to do, first task, identify the kids who are least malnourished in the village. So off they went and, yeah, the villagers went and they identified the, the kids who were least malnourished. And then they said, um, okay, we won't, yeah, we don't come from here. We don't speak um, uh, you know, Vietnamese. We want you to go and sit in the kitchens of those houses and try and see if there's anything different which explains why their kids are less malnourished. And they did that and they found some different feeding practices. They found that people in those households were feeding kids from the bottom of the pot where there's more solid stuff rather than from the watery stuff at the top, which was the norm in the village, and that they had been putting some caterpillars in the, the stew um, yeah, and crabs from the paddy fields. And then the really crucial thing is that the, these two safe people did not then say, right, we're now going to start the Save the Children crab rearing project. Instead, they said, okay, put up those results in the local commune in the village hall. And then everybody came along, saw those results and said, well, we can do that. And sure enough, they reduced mal they cut malnutrition in half in three months. And the oh really God. interesting thing about it is that it didn't involve a project. It involved research by local people and social learning, as it's called, um, where that, that, that research, the findings of that research is spread amongst the community and the community acts on the findings. And those people, the, um, the Sternins, Monica and Jerry Sternin, they were these two workers, then turned that into a lifetime. And they've, They've been doing this kind of approach and they've done that example in Egypt where they said, yeah, everybody else says, oh, 97% FGM in Egypt. That's awful. We'll never get anywhere with that. And they say, lead us to the 3%. And they found that the 3% of girls who were not being cut uh, had certain things in common. For example, they had an older sister who'd been cut and had been had serious health problems, um, uh, various other things. And, they, and the people who were running the project they said, well, we want to get these people on camera. And the people who are running the project said, far too dangerous. And so the, the, you know, Monica Sternin said, well, at least let us ask. And when they asked, people said, yeah, sure. And so they built a whole uh, advocacy out of this positive deviance observation exercise. Now, the interesting thing is that this has been around for 20, 30 years, and yet it has not caught on uh, in the aid business. And I think it's because precisely because it is not a project. Uh, and therefore, it doesn't fit in the kind of mental landscape or the funding landscape of aid, which I think is tragic because I think there's huge possibilities for doing great stuff. And I love the fact that it it recognizes it and respects the system's ability to solve the problems without having some you know white savior coming in and and doing it for people. Yeah, and I think that that's a common um, conception, whether that's a misconception. Um, it, with the aid projects is that you get a lot of and I see this a lot in in people in my age group who go to countries um, volunteering um, to go to build a playground or a loo or something like that um, with no like technical capacity to do that and the amount they spent on getting there could probably have paid for a person to actually be paid to come in and do it um, and so I think the, this issue of what is considered white saviorism although 
quite, I guess, a dubious term, I suppose. Um, And the issues with that in that aid is often understood as, okay, we're going to come in and fix everything. Not understanding there are projects like um, in Tikhamgar, like the, it's very groundwork movement um, and then lending support in any way to that. Or just literally like putting the research in and giving people that research. Um, and then they're doing, you know, like the case you said um, with mal- the malnutrition. They they do then they then people people are not stupid. They can then use that information to then make change themselves. Um, yeah. And so, like the kind of idea, what do you think about a lot of forms of aid being maybe a bit like condescending or a bit um, kind of intrusive? What do you think about that? Well, I may be um, in a uh, yeah a little progressive bubble within a, a dark and horrible bigger hole but you know that's not the aid kind of conversation i recognize the aid conversation i recognize is you know how do we give more power and resources to groups in developing countries how do we you know democratize what's going on how do we enable projects to dance with the system to be more flexible there's a whole field within the aid business called thinking and working politically or adaptive management which is saying precisely these kind of things you know um so i think there's yeah people in the aid business are generally well-intentioned they're generally not stupid and they've seen that a lot of this stuff is true the question is how do you do it and that is the bit which is really difficult it's really difficult to do anyway it's difficult to do because of the fact that power follows money so as long as there is a, a a disparity between aid money being raised in the north and spent in the south it's highly likely to be accompanied by disparity in power however good the intentions of people Right. So, for example, we've seen in the aid business good intentions and then suddenly there's a crisis or a scandal and you suddenly get another layer of what they call compliance. So we're worried about you know, money laundering. We're worried about corruption. We're worried about counterterrorism. Therefore, here's another layer of reports and another layer of accountability to upwards to the donors. And that's always going to trump accountability to communities who don't have the money and therefore don't have the power. So, I mean, you know, that idea of power works inside the aid sector. We're not an aid, a power-free zone. And I often sort of say that to my colleagues, that you, it's no good wishing, you know, that the world was different. You've got to look at how the world is, and that includes the power, for, power and money are linked, and then see what you can do within, you know, what are the margins for manoeuvre within those things, within those realities. Yeah, and I guess there's kind of, um, you have to be oft- optimistic whilst also being, I guess, realistic. I see enough good examples, you know. I mean, I've uh, I've been involved with some fantastic stuff going on in Myanmar, for example, recently, which, despite the coup, uh, has achieved some fantastic things. And and um, and social movement. Yeah, uh, we've done a big research project project on how social movements responded to COVID nineteen at Oxfam, um, and that's been just hugely inspiring because you know the, the the level of innovation and determination and bravery across the world of uh, people trying to help each other get through the pandemic has been yeah truly wonderful so i think you don't have to look very hard to get inspired and not to get all gloomy but sometimes the aid biz the, the, yeah the aid debate gets a bit sterile i think in in the uk and, uh, and elsewhere in the north and it all becomes you know about you know set piece arguments which don't which ignore the fact that so much change happens without aid spontaneously and if aid can get behind that that change then, then that's much better than trying to sort of have everything driven by aid, which doesn't tend to doesn't tend to work very well. 
do you think that's why in the if you can call it kind of a sector the international development um sector is kind of prioritizes experience over um maybe i don't know other factors in the sense that um a lot of people who i've been speaking to within um the kind of sector um speak about the importance of gaining experience because it is about you know you uh, as an individual have so much experience so you can say you'll look at a project immediately and say okay i've learned from history we've seen something similar here and we can work on that <laughs> never ask an old person whether experience is important <laughs> <laughs> i didn't mean it like that no i didn't mean it like that i meant like they're always going to say yes they're, yeah of course of course and give you another job um so yes it is and i think i mean for a couple of reasons, but the, the, the key one is the one you mentioned, that there is no recipe, there is no formula you can learn from university. Um, there is an awful lot of this stuff which is tacit, you know, it's about judgment, it's about thinking, oh, this looks a bit like something I saw five years ago. Uh, it's about habits. I think we can, we can teach those habits better. And I teach a course on activism at the LSE, which is trying to, to get these kind of messages across. But in the end, people have got to get out there. And, you know, I personally have always learned from uh, catastrophic failure and humiliation much more than success. And I think, you know, it takes the time to accumulate enough failures to, 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 to learn a decent amount. Um, so, yeah, I think there is a real value in, in, in experience. But you've got, to be, you've got to be reflexive and reflective so that when you have these experiences, you learn from them. And that's the thing I think we should be teaching at university. Do you think that, um, so people who... Uh, are looking to pursue a career um, in this kind of sector. Um, do you think that it's best to kind of get out there and pursue volunteer work initially um, in terms of, and then pursue a master's maybe, or, you know, I mean, this it seems, obviously you, you teach uh, international um, development. So you're obviously gonna be pro, I guess the, um, obviously educational side of things but how does that weigh up because I know I've spoken to a lot of people who said who've said to me you know the it's all the education is on the ground it's not the acad academic side of it necessarily if you want to start out initially what do you think about that well the course I teach I think the students who've already been involved as activists get more from it they recognize more of the things I'm talking about you know, it resonates more with them um so and i get a lot of people who forgot you know five years experience working on everything from refugee programs to you know getting lesbian rights or whatever so um i think there is an argument for getting some experience first but it's really hard to gain that experience uh in terms of alternatives to volunteering um volunteering can be okay but um it, I, I think there are other ways to do this thing First thing I would say is if you are white British, think about getting involved in Britain before you think about going off to help some other country. Um, I think there's a lot of stuff needs fixing in Britain. But, you know, and in a sense, you're more qualified for that than you are for going somewhere else to, 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 to help them there. Um, I think if you're interested in that sort of advocacy campaigning world, which is my background, it really helps to have worked for a target institution. I'm not gonna call them the enemy, but if you come to a job interview at somewhere like Oxfam and you've worked in a bank or in a, in a developing country government or in, a, uh, yeah, in an oil company, we, we're really interested because that means you know how those institutions work and that's a real asset. 
So think about you know putting together a portfolio which makes you attractive rather than uh, a portfolio purely of virtue, which mm-hmm. is not in short supply. Okay, yeah, that's re- that's really really interesting. Um, I'm I was scribbling that down. Um, yeah, I think that's really insightful because I don't hear that a lot. Um, a lot of the things say go out and volunteer, and then obviously you get all the difficulties with that. And as a student, probably majority of students probably can say the same similar thing. Maybe um, in that I'm not really bringing anything particularly um, novel to the kind of a new well, place, unless I unless a kind of volunteering here is a bit different. I mean, volunteering for me is a, is a, is more of a moral act, right? And that's absolutely fine. You volunteer because you want to help some people. I think doing it as a, as a, as a, to build your CV is a bit sick mm. in a way. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I think it's morally dubious, maybe. Um, but yeah, building on kind of the your recent blogs because you were talking about your blog that you do. Um, we could talk a little bit about some of your recent um, activity in your summary of. 2021 if that's okay sure um so i thought maybe we could start with by talking about your i think this is your most recent um article about um how to help protesters who are uh, who are trying to engage policymakers because you discuss a lot about this them and us situation of the there's the insider and there's the outsider and how to get those outsiders particularly obviously talking about you know um particular movements like black lives matter um lgbtq rights and we'll talk a little bit about feminist protests in a minute um how do you help them link to um kind of policy makers to help make change yeah so this is a perennial question in advocacy right and the blog is called from poverty to power and it's one of the things that uh, uh keeps coming up so you've got Broadly, you know, in this thing called advocacy, and what advocacy is, is about, uh, okay, it's not enough to run some little project, even if the project's successful, we want to try and influence the system, we want to influence policies or behaviours or laws, and that requires a different set of skills and a different set of activities where we lobby, essentially, Um, uh, uh, and within advocacy, you've got these two broad currents, insider and outsider, so the outsider, think Extinction Rebellion, think, you know, gluing yourself to the roads, think, you know, we are going to make a big fuss which will get our issue into the public eye and change the public debate and hopefully at some point change policies because of that, because of shifting public opinion. And then you've got sort of something closer, almost to business lobbyists, which say, okay, we're going to put a suit on, we're going to come up with sort of doable solutions, we're going to present these to governments, in, you know, and we're going to go along with somebody from the private sector and with, with, you know, with, with the archbishop and we're going to lobby ministers to say, we've got an answer here and we want you to do this. And there's a big gulf between those two. Now, the question that was raised in that blog, uh, and I think it's a good one, is should you be able to do both, right? Should you have, should Extinction Rebellion be able to prowl the corridors of power and say, okay, we've done all this stuff out on the streets, we, we've changed public opinion, and now this is what we want you to do, or should they leave them, leave that to someone else? And I've got mixed feelings. I think it's very difficult to do, and it's difficult to do for a couple of reasons. One is, I've noticed over the years, there's a kind of asymmetry. The, the insider people are really happy with the outsider people, because the outsider people create space. They, they get attention, they worry the decision makers, so the decision makers suddenly become more open to new ideas from the insiders. So they say, great, you know, talk to us or you'll have to talk to that lot. Um, the outsiders are much more ambivalent. They kind of they kind of realize that, you know, 
social movements tend to uh, yeah, end up in some kind of negotiation, but they don't like it. And they always suspect the insiders of being a bit too close to power, a bit too comfortable, a bit too easily co-opted. So you get this very uneven relationship and sort of, you know, even a, and, and the hardest thing to deal with in these things is victory, paradoxically. So I remember when Jubilee 2000 won a massive uh, program on debt relief in, in 2000, which is what it was aiming for, the movement split at that moment with one part of Jubilee denouncing the other part of Jubilee for being reformist and, and selling itself short. Um, so I think there's all sorts of dynamics within these movements, which are very difficult to bridge. So the question is how, with given that, is it useful to help both sides understand each other and to build bridges? And I, and I think it's worth exploring. It's what I, you know, it's partly what I do, but there's a final point on this, which is I think that there's also an issue of temperament. Some people like throwing rocks, some people like throwing, shaking hands. Not many people like doing, you know, not like doing both. So you'll tend to get a different temperament in the people around the outside and the people on the inside, which makes it even harder for them to, to sort of have lasting alliances and to work together. And in terms of campaigns that are sometimes associated with forms of violence um, or, you know, cause a, a media storm, say, with like Extinction Rebellion. Um, how does, a, like you say, a, an NGO relate to them and try to help them whilst also dealing with that conflict that people have with the fact that they uh, sometimes are associated with, with violent tendencies, do you think? I don't think XR has been violent. I don't think... I don't like violent, I, yeah, but it's maybe controversial. Non-violent direct action is not yeah. violent, right? It's yeah. Yeah. Well, firstly, I don't think Extinction Rebellion is saying, oh, please, Oxfam, come and tell us what to do. And that's how it should be. So I don't think, you know, we, uh, as far as I know, we don't do much with XR. Um, and we're in, the, <clears throat> I guess we're in that position of being an in, a fairly insider organisation, although we do climate change campaigns in public, saying, great, you know, there's now more attention because of Greta and because of XR. And uh, that's made it more possible to bring about change on climate change. I think... I wish in a way that XR was a bit more able to articulate, a, if you like, a theory of change, a, a kind of, I don't, I don't know quite what happens after the protest subsides. And the point about social movements and the, the things called issue cycles is that they always subside. No mobilization lasts for more than a few months. And, um, you know, uh, and you get spikes and troughs. And I've been in you know, back in the day, I've been in activist organisations which used to beat themselves up because they couldn't get as many people out on the street. You need to recognise that that's just the nature of a social organisation. There's a moment when everything coalesces and a moment when things move on. And the real test is what do you do during them both? Mm. And you do different things during both. So I think that's the kind of stuff that, that movements need to think about. But, you know, I, the last thing I think XR needs is, is being told what to do by Oxfam. Yeah, no, I understand that. Um, and there is... Yeah, again, a protest movement has its own values and doesn't want to be told what to do. But... Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, this comes back to systems, you know, that this is a system which with varieties, like a garden with lots of different plants, different varieties. And that's the secret of resilience and the and that, that diversity is what will lead to change and, and new developments. So we should celebrate this, the fact that there's lots of different tendencies, not try and sort of impose monoculture on the garden. Um, and I, so, so I'm, I'm relaxed about a lot of these things. I really like that analogy, actually. Um, and in a similar vein of thinking um, in terms of how protest movements 
um, might actually end up being taken up quite quickly by governments, um, but maybe misappropriating, misappropriating them. You also talk in another blog about um, kind of this idea of like stealing feminist clothes. And I think this happened, you mentioned the example in Italy of this femo-nationalism where um, right-wing campaigns um, like end up framing feminist campaign um like feminist movements for their own campaign material um, as kind of a strategy to either um, paint a bad colour on people of colour um, or, you know, for their own agenda. Um, what is your kind of opinion on that? How do we deal with situations like this? Yeah, this is from a fantastic uh, double issue of gender and development. If you're interested in gender and development, do, do please have a look at it. Um, and as you say, what it pointed out was you know, a thing we're familiar with, I think, in the UK as well, you know, that... The language of feminism is used to um, to criticise Muslims, for example. Um, so I'd say uh, the one thing I would say, and I've actually just been before this before this conversation, I've just been transcribing a fascinating podcast with a feminist academic from Pakistan, um, who's right in the middle of this, and you know, and she says that's that that she has fascinating conversations with students in full burqa with their faces covered who want to know more about feminist, secular feminism and how it works. Um, and oh, she, wow. as far as she's concerned, that is a very good conversation to have. So I think you need to get part, yeah, there, there is this awful word, which I find myself starting to use with some horror, othering, you know? So there is a huge uh, increase in the use of othering, of saying this group of people is beyond the pale. There's no point in talking to them. They are other um, and they have nothing in common with us. And I think that is just a really bad way to go. So on all these things, I think um, it's you need to talk and listen and put your prejudices aside and you'll find out interesting stuff. You may then decide you have major disagreements, of course. I'm not completely kumbaya about this. You know, It's not that everybody thinks the same. People have genuine and violent disagreements and that's fine. But first, you have to be able to think about the point of view of the other, povo, um, and then you, then you decide what, you, what you're going to do. Yeah, and I think, I mean, obviously that's a really common um, thing that people talk about in university settings, about bringing in people of obviously different opinions um, and no platform policies and things like that. But I guess that's another debate for another day. Um, so uh, you also chat about um, women's leadership um, and whether there is a distinctive form or maybe policy preference that women have. Um, obviously, saying women as a category is very simplistic. Um, but do you think that there are, you could say, characteristic things looking over different uh, women, like female leaders um, that you could say is in common? Or do you think that this is a complete overgeneralization? Well, I'm starting to be aware of my positionality again, uh, Marnie. Um, I will stick to the research I've read, I think, on this. Um, so there's research, fascinating research from uh, Hatoon and Weldon who built a monster database of um, uh, social movements, feminist movements around the world and the politics that surrounded their, th those countries. And what they found through their, you know, big regression, like you have to do in political science in America, um, is that the thing that explained positive change on policies towards women, not necessarily outcomes, but policies, was a combination of leadership from above and pressure from below by an organized feminist movement. Um, and when you know this was discussed, a, a Filipina activist said, yeah, that's what we call the rice cake. 
if you want to make nice rice cakes, you need heat from above and heat from below. So that was like an interesting example of um, where you know a fairly rigorous approach showed the importance of feminist social movements in terms of bringing about policy change. Um, and I've now completely forgotten the question. Oh, I was just talking about whether there's a distinctive um, kind of women, yeah, women's leadership. Yeah, so I think there's a woman called Srilata Batliwala who's really interesting on this. And she has a pretty convincing uh, body of work saying there is such a thing as feminist leadership. You can't essentialize and say, yeah, no, all women are, you know, um, different and more inclusive and, you know, cuddly. I mean, we had Mrs. Thatcher, so, you know, don't, don't go and go overboard on that. But uh, overall, you will see, according to Batliwala, um, more attention to social social issues to water to health and we've seen that in you know some interesting natural experiments in places like india where once they int they introduced reservations which are which is the the weather is in india for when there's a quota of women on the local councils uh, the panchayats and they introduced them in some panchayats before others so you had a kind of natural experiment where some panchayats became more feminine than others and they could see um, that made, I think the findings, if I remember rightly, were that over the first generation, what the critics predicted happened, that there wasn't much change. Maybe men were just putting in their wives as proxies. In the second generation, those panchayats started to do more on social issues than the others. So I think we've seen in quite a number of places, and this is very much what um, the podcast I was doing with um, uh, Aisha Khan uh, today was saying, was that yes, Women's leadership actually makes a difference, especially when you have that power from below and women in positions of power in parliament. Yeah, I think um, in terms of the women in position in like power in parliament, not only the work that they're actually doing, but in terms of as an aspirational thing, do you think as their data support the fact that that makes a significant difference? Absolutely. And it's not something you can separate. So you know, what we found with that uh, domestic violence program uh, I mentioned, which involved 4 million men and women actually across South Asia. One of the things that emerged from that is that people who got in, got organized decided they wanted to go into politics. And we actually had to introduce training for people on how to get into the political That's system. That's amazing. That's you can't, you know, you don't control these things. Once you, you know, once you unleash these processes, um, you don't know where they're going to end, which is just how it should be. Yeah, and that's completely a central theme of your of your book in talking about how these complex situations you these the, you get these critical junctures where you just you don't know what's going to happen, but you kind of have to I guess tentatively move around that. There is no recipe, um, and working with the fact that the world is not linear and it's not it doesn't always make sense. To surrender power is glorious. He, he said that. Did Duncan Green said that? I just did. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I'm going to quote that on the on the podcast. Ending. It sounds vaguely like something from the Chinese Communist Party, but I'll go with it. A little bit, but well, it's in this context, it's good. Um, so, with regards to the future for um, for you, what 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 is this next year? Um, obviously, we're coming into a new year now. Um, what does this next year have in store for you? Well, I've, I've got a whole I've got 75 fantastic students starting on Thursday um, to and we'll you know, explore activism and influencing together for, for a term at LSE. I'm so great. jealous of the students. That sounds so cool. I'll send you the course manual, don't worry. Oh, thanks. Um, 
Uh, I'll keep the blog going um, for, for Oxfam. Um, and uh, the new project I'm involved in is actually um, working with senior humanitarians in the UN system uh, to, uh, to try and help them improve their skills at influencing governments because they increase it within the humanitarian system. They're also having this kind of um, moment of realization that it's not enough to do tents and blankets. You've got to actually influence government behavior and they, they want some help thinking through how you do that. So this will very much not be chalk and talk. I'm not going to be PowerPointing people who've got 20 years of experience, yeah. but we'll be sort of hosting a really interesting conversation. So I'm really looking forward to that. That sounds incredible. That sounds amazing. Um, you live a very interesting life. That's really cool. Um, thank you so much for coming on today. I really appreciate your time. I know you're really busy. So thank you so much. Um, and yeah, Duncan, Duncan Green, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. Bye-bye.